say? I said, hey. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear you. It's okay. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And today, we will be discussing a brief history of birth control. Birth control. Mm -hmm. I'm so ready. Yeah. And I said brief on purpose because this history is so long and so complicated. Because if there's anything that people have wanted to do throughout all of human history is have sex, is to (laughs) do the deed, do whatever you want to call it. People have always done it. But that doesn't exactly mean they've always wanted a child as a result because kids are cute, but you don't always want one or you just don't have the time for one or maybe you're just not ready for one. And this has literally always been the case. So Alicia, this is your first moment to shine. Um, What is your knowledge (laughs) on birth control history? (laughs) I don't know that much about the ancient, ancient history. Um, I know there was some whack methods of birth control, but I don't remember what they are. And then I know some about like the feminist movement and how that has impacted access to birth control. Mm -hmm. And then recently it's been in the news a lot. So all of those things tie into it. But in reality, I still have a lot I can learn to fill in the gaps. Okay. Okay. Because like you said, it's just such a broad history. Exactly. It's super long. And honestly, we might end up expanding upon some portions of this history in future episodes. We're still going to cover a lot though, which is why today we are going to focus on two main topics. The first being a brief history of it over like ancient history. And the second part's going to be birth control and the feminist movement which is where the bulk of our discussion will take place, um, like about the history. So cool. This is going to be a great adventure. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Music. (laughs) All right. So Alicia, I know that you have an IUD and I myself use just the standard old birth control pill. But Mm -hmm. have you ever wondered what other contraceptive options we could have? Say if like we lived on the islands in ancient Greece or we lived in China or something? No. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to explore options throughout different civilizations because there are many different kinds of birth control methods, even in ancient times. Can you, Alicia, just give me like one birth control method you can think of that might have been available in history? Like anyone you can think of abstinence. (laughs) That is a method of birth control, but I didn't have that one written down, but I did see stuff when I was researching that talked about abstinence and how like that is obviously the most effective because you're literally not able to get pregnant if you don't have sex. I don't really think I believe in abstinence as birth control, but people do. So that's why I said it. Exactly. Okay. Give me another one. The potion of some kind of plants or like herbs that cause. Yes, yes, yes. So one method of birth control in ancient history is herbal medicine. Um, Amazing. So there are two forms of herbal birth control. You can take it 
orally, so eating something or drinking something, you can have a, I don't know if I can say this right, a pessary, pessaries. They're like devices that you use to physically block the cervix from sperm. So you like Mm. shove it up there. And when I was looking into these different methods of birth control, there were two civilizations that really use these methods the most, these herbal methods. And the first one is ancient Egypt. So in Egypt is where the earliest gynecological and one of the earliest medical texts was published, which is the Kahan gynecological papyrus. And it was made in 1850 BCE. So that was a real long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. For the, the fact that one of the first medical documents we have in history is about women's medicine is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And it does mention a couple different types of birth control. And the first one is a mixture of crocodile dung and honey, which you insert into the vagina as a pessary. So, wow. <laughs> Cute. Literal <laughs> crocodile poop. But it actually kind of makes sense because honey is antibacterial. So when you put honey in, you're canceling out whatever's in the poop. And then the poop has acidic properties that worked as a spermicide because sperm thrive in alkaline environments. So like alkaline is a basic environment and spermicides would be acidic. So it might have actually worked, which is crazy. I don't know how they figured that out. Another option was you could take cotton or plant fiber soaked in, it looks like it says acai, but it's more like acai fruit. Okay. And then you mix it with honey once again, and you insert that like a tampon. It's interesting because this method, once again, looks like it actually might've worked. The acai breaks down into lactic acid when it's in you, which Ah, acts- and the acid. Acts as a spermicide. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. And there has been- more modern studies like in the past century that looks at using this plant's leaves as birth control and it actually reduces the chance of pregnancy by 88% in rats. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And if you use the seeds, it reduces pregnancy by a hundred percent. Oh so it was oh like real effective. Yeah. Wow. So the fact that these methods had grounds for scientific reasoning is really incredible. I think it shows so much about like how well researched their birth control methods must have been because they would not be putting like crocodile poo-poo in their private places if they were not seeing results. The ancient Egyptians were so smart. Like they knew everything. It's crazy. They astound me. It's incredible. And there are way more birth control methods they did too, but we don't have time to go over all of them. But those two, I just thought were so interesting because they actually might've worked which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptians were not the only ones to have such notable ideas. So up next, we're going to ask three prominent physicians from another civilization about their opinions on which birth control we should use. So Alicia, do you know maybe who these men could be, or at least like what civilization we might be going to next? Are they Greek? They are Greek or Roman. Amazing. Oh, is it like Hippocrates? Mm Mm-hmm. There's two more, uh, though. <laughs> no, nah, I don't know anyone else besides Hippocrates. Okay, knowing Hippocrates is good enough. So, okay, yeah, we're in the Greco-Roman era. I got my toga on, and I'm ready to go to the doctor. Up first, we're going to go see Hippocrates, who is known as the father of medicine. And you may know his name, even if you literally know nothing about ancient medicine, 
because the oath that doctors take to do no harm is based on the Hippocratic Oath, which outlines how doctors should practice medicine. And he's also credited to writing upwards of 50 medical texts, which is called the Hippocratic Corpus. So he is an amazing, amazing ancient physician. One example of one, a recommendation of birth control for him would be coming from one of the texts in the Hippocratic Corpus called On the Nature of Women, which recommends that you drink copper dissolved in salt water to prevent pregnancy for one year. Oh my God. (laughs) And But hey, copper, I mean, copper, there's literally a copper IUD. Right. So it definitely works. But it's also just super dangerous. Do not drink copper. Yeah, that's straight poison. (laughs) Yeah, it is literally poison. So don't do that. But you're right, because it is in IUDs now, which once again is just showing that they had some like merit in these ideas that look so crazy. But if they were working for them at the time, like this was an important thing doctors were working on, actually. It wasn't something they were just like, oh, we think this works. We're going to put leeches on people. Right. The oldest medical text was about women, the Hippocratic Corpus, which actually I should note is not for sure actually written by him. It might be just like a lot of people accrediting their writings to him, but either way. Got it. It's a bunch of papers about medicine and a ton of them are on women. So women's medicine was actually a big thing. So yeah, copper, don't drink it, but it worked. Our next physician, Galen, would say, no, 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 no. I have better option for you. And we are going to say, okay, let's hear it. We trust you, Galen. Like you're a Roman physician, you're a surgeon. Galen actually was one of the first physicians to dissect humans and begin learning about human anatomy directly from the human body. Because before they would dissect animals and then infer that humans were built the same way. No one actually looked at humans. Yes, I am the same (laughs) as the cow you dissected. Literally, they would dissect like (laughs) sheep and stuff. (laughs) yeah he was one of the first to actually dissect humans and he would have a lecture and then dissect someone on the table right there and people would come and watch him do it they were like anatomy lectures that's cool yeah it was a really big thing you would think like okay he's a really smart guy so we're like okay cool what is what do you think we should do for birth control and he would say eat some pomegranate seeds oh yeah Um, but pomegranate seeds are interesting because can you think of anything in Greek or Roman history you might have heard of that has to do with pomegranate? Isn't it that it's the fruit of the underworld in Greek yeah. mythology? Yes. And it's the fruit of Persephone, who is a wife of Hades, who's the mm-hmm. lord of the underworld. Yep. Yeah. So in the myth of Persephone and Hades, she's hanging in the field with her mom, Dementia. Demeter. Demeter, yeah, who is the goddess of agriculture and such. And then Hades comes up from the underworld and kidnaps her and then takes her and makes her his wife. And while she's down there, she eats so many seeds. It depends on like which myth is told, but so many seeds and the amount of seeds she eats is the amount of time she has to stay in the underworld with Hades. And that's the amount of time that winter lasts for because her mother is so upset that she's gone So when she's in the underworld with Hades, that's when winter is. And that's also when the earth is infertile. You can't plant crop during the winter. So pomegranate is also really closely aligned with not being pregnant with birth control and things like that. 
Oh, that's so interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So that was interesting that that would be a birth control prescription. And I was trying to look up things about if it actually worked because pomegranate's an interesting brew in that it has some type of chemical in it, like compound that stops estrogen signaling in the body. People eat pomegranate as a type of like anti-breast cancer thing or something I saw for like alternative methods of preventative Mm. care. So it breaks down estrogen, but then pomegranate also has its own compound that acts like estrogen does in the body, which is interesting because if you're eating pomegranate seeds and it's somehow putting this artificial estrogen into you, which is exactly how the modern birth control pill works. You're putting this alternative estrogen and progesterone in your body. So maybe pomegranate seeds worked a little bit, but I couldn't find any scientific studies that were like, yes, this for sure worked. Okay, so next, we're going to ask someone else for a second opinion. And we go and meet Serratus, who is a Greek gynecologist who pioneered the birthing chair. Chair, you strap up your feet. (gasps) He thought of stirrups. Yes. Oh my God, Serratus. And he was the first person to think of the newborn assessment, which is the critical couple of minutes after a baby is born, where you check to see if the baby is breathing or has any medical issues. They check reflexes, color the skin, stuff like that. So he mm. came up with that. So he had a huge impact in gynecology and in neonatology, which is like baby, baby medicine, basically. Yeah. So for a smart man, you're like, okay, his contraceptives have to be the best, right? You would think so. So his recommendations to us are don't have sex when you're menstruating because this is when women are the most fertile. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Which no anyone doesn't know, it is when you are the least fertile because your body is literally shedding the part of your uterus that would be the implantation site for an embryo. Right. So he was wrong there. And his second recommendation to us is that you should hold your breath during sex. And then when it's over, you should sneeze to expel the sperm. Oh my gosh. That's so stupid. Yeah. Pretty crazy theory. Holding breath during sex. Like, I don't know if they're like got Olympic swimmers in the Mediterranean or what. <laughs> like, I don't know. That one's crazy. Okay. Well, if none of these methods work for you, and personally, none of these work for me, there is one method that all three of these docs can agree on. And that is drinking the juice from the plant sylphian, sylphon, or um, with a little bit of water every single month. And this plant is basically like a giant fennel plant. And it was an extremely popular form of birth control in ancient culture. Like it was the form of birth control. It was so impactful in how like effective it was that it became like part of the culture in ancient history. There was images of the plant on the currency in some countries It was mentioned in an Athenian play, which if you know like anything about theater, then you know that Athenian plays were a big deal. And they literally mentioned this plant in it and they make a joke about how cheap it used to be because when it got to the height of where it was selling, it would be worth a pound of silver. It was so much money. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was being used so much that it actually went extinct in the fourth century AD. Like they used it out of existence for birth control because 
it was so amazing. It was basically 100% effective for birth control and even had some abortifactant uses too. Wait, I have a question. Do you know like what compound was in this plant that was making it birth control? I don't know what was in it exactly because the plant is literally extinct so they can't test it. Ah. But hey, it worked. This option's gone for us. So there's some other options like we could mix olive oil and honey and cedar and resin together. We could smear it on the cervix. Or if you like really don't like the taste of pomegranate seeds, you could just take half the pomegranate and just like shove it up there. What? It could just be barrier itself. Both of these options are literally different forms of fisting, which is like, (laughs) (laughs) doesn't seem like the ideal birth control method to me. No, 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 no. It's not. So let's talk about other methods. Hit me with another method of birth control you can think of. Girl, I don't know. That's (laughs) why I'm here. Think of of ways that people try not to get pregnant. You're overthinking it. Uh, condoms? Like yeah. people put like things to block? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> condoms have been around for a minute. So the first condom ever recorded was painted on a French cave wall 15,000 years ago. And like, I have many questions about this because I'm like, how do you draw a condom <laughs> yeah. on a French cave wall? Oh my gosh. I don't know. But to give you some context, like 15,000 years ago was the end of the Stone Age. It's also the time oh my God. when pigs were domesticated. So thank you for that fact. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think these condoms were made of? Um, skin? Like not our skin, Jesus. <laughs> not like human skin. <laughs> but like animal skin. Oh my God. Just to clarify for everyone, I meant animal skin. Animal skin. Oh, no, that took a turn. (laughs) I didn't Um, mean for it to. Yeah. So I don't, it might have been made of animal skin, but I saw a lot about animal organs. So so even Uh. in the story of King Minos of Crete, they talk about how he used goat bladders as condoms. And people would also use fish bladders and other animal like testins and stuff. And they'd also use Mm. linen. But condoms are eventually made of rubber once rubber was vulcanized or like when rubber was made. So it was very strong and stretchy. And then condoms really took off, you know, as fashion trends do after World War II, because the army and the government were like, okay, we don't want the boys to be bringing home any STIs to their wives when they get home from war. Uh. That is why. And before that, even in World War I, they were like, they don't need condoms. It's fine. So when World War II came around, they were like, yes, we're giving the troops condoms. And that's when condoms really took off as a birth control method. Um, what's another one? Uh, think of like the most ineffective one you could think of for like today. Abstinence. <laughs> <laughs> that is oh, the no. most... Think of that like is- if you're working at a clinic and they're like, someone's pregnant and they're like, well, what was your birth control method? They're like, oh, we did this. And you're like, what? Oh, Wonder. pulling out, yeah. pulling out. <laughs> that was a thing in history as well. And there are actually three different types of pulling out methods. The first one's called coitus interruptus, which literally means to interrupt sexual intercourse. And this okay. is the pulling out you would think of. It's pulling out with ejaculation. 
And okay. This is actually mentioned in the Bible. So I'm going to pull out oh. my handy dandy side table hotel Bible. Ah, yes. Our favorite. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to read to you um, some Bible verses from Genesis oh, 38 verses 8 through 10. And it says, when Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put death to him also. End quote there. <laughs> so basically all I got out of that was if you pull out, God will smite you. <laughs> yes. And literally, like, literally in this portion of the Bible is what Christians use as the reasoning for anti-birth oh. control practices. Guys, it was one sentence. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. So literally, Onan's like, okay, I don't want to get my sister-in-law, basically, pregnant. So I'm just going to spill the seed on the ground that God was like, no, and killed him. And so that's why it's considered a sin in Christianity, which we'll talk about later why that fact is like so important because it has had a huge impact on the history of birth control, which is why I wanted to read the exact verse to you. Number two, we have coitus obstructus. And this was a popular method in ancient China. So master tongue advocated for men to use this practice so, so that they could reserve their yang or the essence of being a man. So basically it's when you're having sex and then you pull out, but instead of ejaculating anywhere else, you try to put it back into your body, basically. You're about to come and you're like, no. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there was a method that they would teach men to do this. Okay. And they would press their urethra between the scrotum and the anus with a finger as they ejaculated. And they believed in China that this would cause the semen to go up the spine through all of their chakras and <gasps> into the brain. And that way you would keep your essence of being a man. It would just go back into you. Uh, up to the brain. Okay, I see. But if you do this method, what it actually does is it redirects the semen into your urethra and then it expels it in your urine. So it oh. actually works, but it sounds real uncomfortable personally. Like, I, don't I don't think I'm not that a man, sounds... so I don't know, but yeah. that's not Boys, so let us know. Would you ever try this? <laughs> yeah, but- this method was still not great because you still lost some of your essence of being a man, some of your ring. So the third method of pulling out is called coitus reservatus, which is basically just not ejaculating at all. It's having sex without coming. And in Chinese okay. tradition, this practice allowed, like I said, for the man to reserve his yang, but it also allowed for him to gain some of his partner's yin, which is the female essence. So it's the ability to still have sex with your partner without losing a part of yourself, but also you get to gain part of them. And this practice is actually still a form of kundalini yoga in the sexual form of that yoga within a couple or like with a partner that you'd be sexual with. Sexy yoga. Yeah, which is interesting because in one of my favorite shows, The Bold Type, like one of the girls in it was having troubles with her boyfriend. So they tried this like sexual yoga thing where they weren't actually mm-hmm. supposed to have sex, but they're supposed to like reconnect them. And I was like, is this that? Oh, I don't know. But that was something they did. And also this coitus reservatus 
was also one of the only kinds of sinless, non-reproductive sex you could have in Christianity. So in Christianity, like it's a sin to have sex and for it to not be reproductive, which is why birth control is like a no, because birth control would mean that it's not, you're not trying to reproduce when having sex. But if you're having sex and you don't come, then in medieval times, at least, it was thought like, this is not sinless because women were often prescribed sex as medicine. So if you went to the doctor and you were like, I'm sick, they'd be like, you need to go home and sleep with your husband. This was medical practice. Women were told you had to sleep with your husband to stay healthy and to not become hysterical. And this idea lasted all the way through the 20th century. So the man was like, okay, I'm not wasting my seed. I'm not wasting making children, but I'm helping my wife stay healthy. So it's not a sin. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's such a niche. That's a few words Mm -hmm. that has set off this like major (laughs) impact that is still affecting us to this day. Yeah. Great. Those are three other methods we could use birth control, but I think all of those sound ineffective. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about one more main one in history. And I don't think you're going to get this one, but you can try if you want. <laughs> Dude, you can't keep doing this to me. It's extended breastfeeding. How was I <laughs> supposed to get that? <laughs> it's called lactational amenorrhea method. Oh, amenorrhea. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're breastfeeding, you don't ovulate and you don't have menstruation right. and you can't get pregnant. So a lot of times women would just continue breastfeeding their children for an extended amount of time to as a literal <laughs> method of birth control to not get pregnant. I'm literally imagining in Game of Thrones yeah. that one, what's his name? King, like he was Child. such a creepy little boy. Yeah. Oh my oh. God. He was literally breastfeeding oh, until he was like- an A of Aaron, I think. Yeah, maybe. I can't remember, I but he was breastfeeding- Catelyn Stark's sister until he was 10. I was like, this is so whack. This is too much. That's kind of what it was. And this was a really popular method for poor women and lower middle-class women as a form of birth control. And was also like side effect almost of the jobs of people who are wet nurses. And then also it was a method used by enslaved women in the American South. Because if you were breastfeeding, then you could avoid the breeding that the slavers were trying to carry out with you or even Mm. having children of your own that end up being sold away was a good method of birth control for all the like sexual assaults they would go through. Yeah. So that method was used in ancient Rome and it was used all the way till modern times. Along with the extended breastfeeding, there was also female condoms, sponges, and cervical caps. So there were many, many methods of contraception throughout history. And I just really barely scratched the surface there. I basically just touched on the ones that I thought were interesting or that worked. Um, But since medicine is always advancing, like we always talk about, there's no surprise that the methods to prevent pregnancy are endless and they're always evolving. However, none of these have really compared to modern contraceptives. And along with all the methods we talked about, which honestly, some people still use because they want that more natural birth controls or in countries where maybe they don't have access to modern birth control. A lot of those are still part of either their culture or their healthcare, whatever it may be. But today we have things like the IUD, we have the implant, and we also have the pill. 
And the pill literally changed the history of birth control for women and arguably the history of women (laughs) in the modern era. So here's a little back history to modern birth control history. After the Middle Ages, when the separation of church and state was literally non-existent, like in medieval times is when birth control just went kaput. In Asian history, Mm -hmm. it was such a big thing. It was in all these medical texts and physicians were researching it and figuring it out. And then medieval time, Middle Ages hit. The church said no. So birth control was not widespread. People did not know what to do or how to use it. No one was researching it. Doctors didn't even talk about it. And it lasted all the way till the modern era to the point where in 1873, the U.S. Congress signed into act the Comstock Act, which was signed by President Grant, which stated that the spread of information about birth control, even by doctors, was illegal, which is insane. Stop public health information about birth control. I'm already so annoyed. Yeah, birth control is already, I'm pretty sure, illegal at this point as well. So not only could you not have contraceptives, you literally couldn't even learn about it now to do it illegally. This law was very bad. It affected lower class women more than anything because upper class women had the opportunity to go to Europe and learn about contraceptives there because they were very widespread and people were well educated Mm -hmm. on them. But the lower class didn't have that opportunity at all. Like they just did not have access to birth control and they were having babies at an alarming rate. And in this time from when the law passed 1873 to 1900, so 27 years later, the infant mortality rate went up from 37% to 60% in the U.S. Over half the babies being born were dying within, I think it's like the first year of life is what qualifies for the infant mortality rate. Because people didn't have the money to pay for that many children. Women's bodies just weren't able to produce that many healthy children. It was just becoming a really big problem. Babies were literally dying left and right. And lower class women were stuck in the lower class. They were unable to build life for themselves. And they were unable to get out of that lower class position. Hmm. And no one was like doing anything except for one woman. Do you know which woman started doing stuff for this? Was it Margaret Sanger? It is Sanger? Margaret Sanger. Oh my God. Yeah. So Margaret was a New York City nurse in 1900 who worked predominantly with the lower class. And mm-hmm. she was experiencing these statistics firsthand. And what really kicked her in the butt, I guess, to get into this was when she was helping a woman give birth and the baby was a stillbirth. And the oh. woman was like, thank God. Like she was happy that her baby was still a birth because she couldn't financially provide for her family anymore with all the children. I know it's so terrible. And and a stillbirth for people who I guess who don't know is when a baby is born already having passed away in the womb. Correct, Mm -hmm. Alicia? Yeah. Yes. So that's super sad that this woman was happy about that. It just really shows how bad things were getting. And At that point, Margaret had had enough. She was like, okay, this needs to stop. Something has to be done here. So she did just that. In 1914, Margaret published a woman's magazine called Woman Rebel, where she called birth control, birth control for the first time. Like no one had ever called it that before that. So she Mm. coined the term birth control. And this magazine had over 2,000 subscribers and it challenged ideas of contraception every single week in it. Then two years later, she opened the first birth control clinic in Brownsville, New York. 
And this clinic had knowledge of European birth control, which she had from her own travels. And she had a couple of nurses helping her out who were also birth control advocates that helped her run the clinic. And there was no doctors at this clinic because they were still scared of the Comstock laws because technically this clinic oh, was yeah. literally illegal. Yeah. So after 10 days of the clinic being open, it closed and Sanger was arrested and she was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. But how many patients do you think they saw in those 10 days alone? like giving contraceptive advice and giving contraceptives out. Maybe like 200. They saw 450 women. Oh, dang! (laughs) People were flocking the clinic, honestly. So in 1918, she was only in jail for 30 days. So she got out, went straight to work again. And in 1918, she challenged the state of New York, arguing against the Comstock Act on the claim that it was putting women's health at risk, which Mm -hmm. is super true. And- They And she won. And this was a small win, a small victory, because it was only in New York. But the court allowed for doctors to give contraceptives advice to married women. Baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. Because even three years later, doctors were still not really into this idea of giving contraceptives to women, even though it was legal. So Margaret was like, fine, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And she opened another birth control clinic and organized a conference on birth control, where they spoke about how it was available in other countries and it was accepted there, how there was like real science behind it and just the morals behind birth control and giving the women the ability to choose. So mm-hmm. do you know what organization hosted this event by any chance? Was it Planned Parenthood? It was. It was baby Planned Parenthood because yeah. before Planned Parenthood, it was called the American Birth Control Association. And then it wasn't until okay. the 40s when it actually became Planned Parenthood. But yeah, Margaret's the mother of Parenthood. Yeah, that's why I knew about her. Yeah, I figured that's why I was like, maybe Alicia knows who this lady is. Yeah, so she like laid the foundation for the birth control movement. She was getting the word out there that women needed contraceptives and family planning. She challenged the courts. She made the Catholic Church angry. And she just made people think about contraceptives instead of dismissing them. And while she was making all of this noise, people started to notice. One woman in particular really noticed, and her name was Catherine McCormick. Catherine was from a very prominent family in Chicago. She was an educated woman. She had a bachelor's in biology from MIT, which like, wow, okay, right? And she was married to this very wealthy man. But a couple of years in her marriage, her husband developed schizophrenia. And she learned that this disease was hereditary. So she refused to have any children with her husband because she was like, not putting our children through that. So instead of just being sad that her husband was extremely ill and she didn't have any children, she put all of her pain and her passions into being an activist for women's rights. And one thing that she really focused on was birth control. This is because in 1917, she crossed paths with Margaret. And she listened to a lecture on birth control, and she was hooked on the whole movement. She started smuggling in women's health diagrams into the U.S. And then when her husband died, she inherited $15 million from her husband. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. And at this point, Catherine's in her 70s, and she took that money, and she funded the creation of the birth control pill with it. That's so cool. Yeah. Amazing. After her husband died, she had all this money. Her and Margaret teamed up once again in the early 50s and went to the scientist Gregory Pincus in Worcester, Massachusetts, 
with the idea of their birth control pill, which Margaret had been brainstorming basically. And mm-hmm. what they hoped was that it would be as easy as popping an aspirin. They wanted it to just be like just simple thing for women to do every day. And with the money, within a year, Pincus discovered that the administration of progesterone could trick the body into thinking it was already pregnant. With his research and some other people's research across the country, someone in Mexico, they were able to create the birth control pill. That's so cool. Yeah. In 1960, the FDA approved the pill. Wow. That was a real quick turnaround. So he got the money in 53. He discovered the effects of progesterone on the female body in 54. So six years later, it got approved. <laughs> Nothing would happen that fast now. No way. But yeah, the pill was approved in 1960. And within six years, 6.5 million American women were on the pill. Wow. People literally were like, it's time to take the pill. And I saw a Time magazine article from the 60s that reported that there was a sudden epidemic of women with irregular periods in need of the pill at this time. Uh. Because as we know, the pill is not always used for birth control. Mm -hmm. So this was a huge moment for women, and it coincided with second wave feminism, actually. Alicia, do you want to talk any bit about second wave feminism right now? Um, Yeah, I mean, I can give like a brief overview, at least of what I know about second wave feminism. Yeah, like you're like, the woman's studies minor, not me. <laughs> so you definitely know more, so I know if you want to supplement. Oh, I got to stop you right there, but don't worry. Alicia will get a chance to supplement our discussion with all of her knowledge on second wave feminism. This history was very long and super interesting, and it was taking a while. So we wanted to break up these episodes so that you could have a chance to listen to one, take a break, and listen to the other and enjoy both to their full extent. So in between part one and part two, take a break, do whatever you need to do, sleep, study, work out. I don't know what you do, but do that. And in the meantime, while you're doing all those things and you're scrolling through Instagram, go ahead and follow us at From Skirts to Scrubs or look us up on Facebook and like our page. You can also go to our website where you can learn about Alicia and I. You can check out our sources and our show notes. And then you can head on over to the podcasting apps and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you don't have time for that or you just don't like reviews for some reason, then you should tell a couple friends about us. We love hearing when our listeners tell us how much they love the show and that they told their friends and family about us. Well, that's it for now. So until part two, we will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.